Uh, before we jump into the teaching, we have a couple more announcements. Uh, this is like part of church life as you talk like a family. And so this is a family moment for us. There's lots to talk about in the very beginning. Uh, two weeks from today, we're going to be serving our city. So we're going to gather here and we're going to break out to serve our city. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that at our question and response time today. But more pointedly, we wanted to share with you that due to a conflict schedule with the tower, a pre-existing commitment that they had made, we are not going to be gathering next week in the a.m. We are going to be gathering next week in the p.m. So we are shifting our morning gathering to a 6 p.m. gathering in this city same spot. So we don't anticipate to having to do that often, uh, hopefully <laughs> never again, but uh, due to that conflict, we're shifting to the evening. And it's actually a part of the, the beauty of planting and doing new things as we learn to be flexible and malleable and pliable. And so while this in some ways is an inconvenience, we actually think it's an opportunity to grow uh, and be formed by like us not having to uh, commit to one time in one space. While that is our ideal that we hold to, we want to be open to, to uh, gathering as Jesus' church outside of that space. So we're still Jesus' church. We're just Jesus' church in the evening next week, not in the morning. So please join us at 6 o'clock next, uh, next week, uh, p.m. rather than in the morning. Let's, let's dive into Matthew. Um, I just want to pray again as we do this. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to gather in your presence. You are here, Lord. You say you are inside of us. You are uh, like you are in us and we are in you. And so, Jesus, we just recognize that, that you are at work in our hearts and in our lives. We ask that your word would affect us today because it's yours, God. And so may you stir our hearts and minds um, to become more like you, Jesus. We love you. We submit to you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2014, not too long ago, seven short years, uh, my wife and I had just had our second child, Jacob. And I remember being at home and settled. That's Jacob. He's raising his hand. Uh, I remember being at home and, and settled. And we had a friend from out of town come visit. And they came and visited our, our house over uh, off of Hegman and stayed with us for a day. And as she left, I remember her saying these words, and they'll stick with me forever. She said, wow, you guys are really living the Bakersfield dream. You have your own little plot of land. You bought your first home. You have two kids. You're raising this beautiful family. You've been married for a handful of years. You're living the Bakersfield dream. And, and as uh, that story has always resonated with me, because, because what that story is, is, at first it's true. That's what we aim for often in this city, this comfort and convenience. But second, it, it, it takes us to what we're talking about today, which is this idea of what is the good life. All throughout history, all throughout human history, philosophy, in particular good philosophy, has been about answering that question. What does the good life actually look like? What do you do in the good life? What does participating in the good life mean? And so that's the question we're jumping into today. Because there's all sorts of good life pictures that we see throughout human history. In Greco-Roman culture, it was being a person of high virtue. In Jewish culture, it was obeying the law. In, in, in American culture, it's what we call the American dream. 
It's quite, quite literally when we see people uh, who are not citizens become citizens, they say, I'm so excited to get to live the American dream. But Jesus says that kingdom life, that flourishing life, looks much different than something we would ever craft or expect. It looks radically different than a kingdom that we understand or would ever choose to build if we were a part of building a kingdom. And so we want to zoom in on the Beatitudes, the, script, the scripture that Jordan and Kristen read, and we want to understand what Jesus is saying the blessed life actually is or what the good life actually is as he teaches us about the kingdom of God through the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew, who was a, a, former, who was a follower of Jesus, uh, deeply steeped in Jewish tradition, wrote an account of Jesus's life. That's what the book of Matthew is. And when Matthew talks about the kingdom of God, he actually uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. And those two phrases, they're used interchangeably. Everyone else in the New Testament uses kingdom of God, except for Matthew. He uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. And the reason he does that is because in Jewish culture, uh, God's name was so holy that we would not utter what his name was. And so Matthew, out of respect to his Jewish audience, doesn't say kingdom of God. He describes God's kingdom as the kingdom of heaven. But as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's important that we understand that those two things are actually the same. Because Matthew is talking about the good life as a part of God's kingdom under the authority of Jesus. And when Matthew makes, uh, takes us in the direction that his book goes, as we look to understand Jesus' teaching and Jesus' life, he tells us quite a bit. And not just in words, but he actually tells us quite a bit in the way that Matthew, the literary genius that he is, chooses to structure his book, the way that he writes it. So Matthew writes, and there's five main kind of discourses or five main sections of teaching from Jesus that all end with the phrase, and it happened when Jesus was finished. That's like the mark of Matthew saying, this section is now done, I'm moving on to the next one. And Matthew, by doing this, by having five sections of teaching from Jesus, is actually saying, he, he's trying to signal something to the Jewish reader, signal something to us. And that is that the book of, the book of Moses' books, the five books of Moses, uh, are the like foundation of the Old Testament, the foundation of Israel's story. So when Matthew introduces Jesus through these five teachings, he's saying, look, this is like Moses. This is like a new Moses. But different than just being a new Moses, Matthew builds his letter on the backdrop of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament to the Hebrew people. Uh, specifically, the book of Isaiah is around uh, getting God's people to understand the promises that God has for his people that one day will be fulfilled. And so when Matthew's writing with the book of Isaiah as his backdrop, he's actually writing and saying, this is not just a new Moses. This is not just five new books that lead to life. This is the true Moses. This is the one who can fulfill all of Isaiah's promises. This is the long-awaited peace that, that the Israel, Israel people have been waiting for, for God to come in flesh to fulfill the work that had been promised from long ago. 
And so when we come into Matthew, that's, that's all a part of the backdrop that we're walking into. But also we know by the way that, that Matthew writes that he's, he's trying to not just say this has been fulfilled, but he's also saying this has been completed. So when, through the book of Matthew, he communicates that Jesus is the completion of the missing piece of Israel's story. Jesus like fin- quite literally finishes the puzzle of Israel's story as this new true Moses figure. And this is important because the verses of scripture that we read don't just happen in a modern day vacuum where we take a couple lines and we craft our own meaning from these small amount of words. We should always be asking, how does this relate to the rest of the story? Because the Bible isn't just like a list of rules or something like that. It's a story of God interacting with humanity. It's a story of God coming to his people. And so whenever we read, we should, we should be asking that question, what does this have to do with the rest of the story? And in particular, when we see something from the Old Testament in the New Testament, we don't just drag those words into the New Testament. We drag what that meant in the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so with Isaiah in the Old Testament, Matthew begins to tell a story about Jesus Um, And he describes the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus ascends a mountain. And this again to the Jewish reader should whisper Mount Sinai. This should whisper Moses. This should whisper when, when the most historic time in Israel's history when someone ascended a mountain and came back with the Ten Commandments, God's law, of how to interact with God. And so when Jesus ascends the mountain, Matthew is saying, look, like he is bringing something new. He is completing something that was not complete. He is interacting and bringing God's word, God's revelation to humanity, to this new family that is his church. And so Jesus ascends the mountain and then he sits down, which is this typical uh, posture of a rabbi, of a teacher in ancient Israel who would sit down to talk about uh, what the scriptures are saying and what's happening, who God is and what he's doing. And at this time, the Jews are under the rule of the Romans. They're not like free on their own. They're under the rule of the Romans. And Greco-Roman culture isn't just domineering over Jewish culture. It's actually influencing Jewish culture. And so Greco-Roman culture leans very heavily, think like Socrates, Plato, um, leans heavily into this virtuous life into this like what sort of life, what sort of virtues are a part of your life? Who are you and what are you doing? What is the meaning? What is the purpose? All those sort of questions are happening in Greco-Roman culture. It was just a few centuries before Jesus that Socrates said, not life, but good life is to be chiefly valued. And so this statement and this ethos of the Greco-Roman people is still ringing true at the time when Jesus is there. This question of what is the chiefly good life, what is that? What does that look like? And what's important to understand is that we all live with this like unspoken aim toward what the good life is. And we all know that, that, that when it's placed in front of us, when we talk about it, we, we recognize that we're aiming for something. We're aiming to build something. Sometimes we're just not aware of what that thing is. 
We have this narrative tucked in our mind that like if we could become this or if I could have this, then I would be happy. Then I would be content. Then it would be enough. And whatever that thing is for you, whether that's if I just had 10,000 more dollars in the bank or I just had one more week vacation or if I just had a little bit bigger house or if I, I had my two and a half kids, or whatever the thing is, that reveals a little bit of what we've crafted the ideal, the good life actually as. Whatever that thing that could add to our lives that would make us feel complete in the moment, that reveals, that reveals what we've aimed for as the good life. And while Greco-Roman culture influences Jewish culture, the, the Jews at this time are also asking the same sort of question. What is the good life? Is it being obedient to God's law? Is that what the good life is? But then God in his law says, you should perform these sacrifices. And later in the scriptures, God says, well, you, should, you should practice mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So, so is, is the good life in Jewish culture really about law or is it really about mercy? And so all of these sorts of questions are baked into this moment when Jesus sits down on the mountain. As theologian Scott McKnight says, the entire history of the philosophy of the good life and the late modern theory of happiness is at work when one says, blessed are. And what Scott McKnight is saying is when Jesus uses the term blessed is or blessed are, we are immediately drawn back to the deep question of human history asking what is the blessed life? So while Jesus doesn't use the phrase that we would see necessarily as the good life, the Jewish hearer or reader would absolutely recognize when Jesus uses the phrase, blessed is, that that is a statement about the good life in God's kingdom according to Jesus. He is undoubtedly leaning into describing what a flourishing good life looks like according to him. And Jesus says, blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this immediately, if you're anything like me, just like rubs against everything I know. It rubs against everything I've been like raised to become. It's everything in, it rubs against everything culture has taught me, what it means to be a man with a family. It rubs against the like deep internal core that I've built my life around. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that takes us to, to the beginning to understand like what is Jesus getting after here? These, these beatitudes are these things that we're supposed to actually be. There's an old joke in church culture, like we are, these are the attitudes we're supposed to, like these are the be attitudes, like you're supposed to be these attitudes. And, and that's a legitimate question. Are these attitudes we're supposed to become? Like are these the attitudes we should carry with us? But then that gets a little confusing as we keep reading the be attitudes because then Jesus says, blessed are you who are persecuted. And how do we carry persecution? Like do we practice that? 
I don't think so, and, and I, I would suggest we don't, because like Christians already, generally speaking, are weird enough, let alone like practicing persecution. And so I think we should refrain from that. But it's important to understand that as we get into the Beatitudes, Jesus is casting not just like something to be today, but an all-new vision of human life and flourishing. So while verse, verses 3 through 11 in Matthew 5 start with the word blessed, it's important that we do the hard work of unpacking what that word means and what Jesus is actually saying. The word translated to blessed is the Greek word makairos. And this word is honestly a really tough word to translate into English. It's not simple. And blessed is the best translation we could do. The Bible translators are not wrong by choosing that word. But it's important that we do the hard work to understand what Jesus is actually saying here. There is a little bit better English translation, but not for Americans, not for you and I. It's the phrase, good on ya. Like if you're an, if you're an Aussie, good on ya has a lot of meaning. If you're born and raised in Bakersfield, like my good on ya means nothing. And so good on ya is this like leaning in of like, well done, good job, keep going. And good on ya uh, actually serves this word makairos a little bit better than blessed does, but not to you and I. And I think, that, I think that the English language, when we describe something as blessed or as blessed, what that means is that God's divine favor is upon it. In the English language, when we say something is blessed, that means that God has favor on that thing. And you see, in the Bible, the opposite of blessing is cursing. And the opposite of what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes, which is translated to blessed, is not cursing, but more of a caution how not to live. The word woe is what Jesus uses at the end of Matthew. So we should see the word blessed of like, it is right to participate in. It is good to practice and to do, as well as like God sees and has favor upon these people. So it's... it's right to see God's, God's desire, his favor in this, but we shouldn't limit to that alone, which the word blessed often does. But as God's grace, as God's favor draws us to abide toward a certain life in his kingdom, and that is what the word makairos is doing here. It's, it's, it's drawing us into a different value system, a different kingdom ethic a different way to live, a different way to be human. And it's something that at points that we can participate in. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the scriptures, translates the word makairos to you are blessed when. So this is not just God pouring out divine favor at random. It is not a person becoming this thing on their own and therefore God blesses them. We reject both of those. And the error of the word blessed is that much of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are things for us to actually become. That if we only see it as divinely favored outpouring from God, then we miss the opportunity to practice the joys of kingdom life here in Bakersfield together. And the error on the other side is that if we see this word makairos or blessed as something that we just do, then we, then we develop this like kingdom economic system where I do what God says and then he has to bless me. And we reject that as well. That is not true either. 
Because then if we do that, we developed a like works-based righteousness where God has to bless us because of the things that I've done. And that is, is very far away from gospel truth. But if we, if we allow that mentality to creep into the way that we live, it actually ends up forming us a little bit. And because we can't fully live up to Jesus' teaching, we never complete it like a checklist on Tuesday. We end up like internalizing guilt and shame when we come before Jesus and his words. And that's not what Jesus intends for us either today, church. He doesn't intend for us to leave full of guilt and shame because he invites us to a different way to live and we can't fully fulfill that. He invites us to abide in him as we practice the good things he has declared for us. Because if the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes are just deeds to be done and they're morally speaking black and white, right and wrong, and that is not how people, not who humans actually are. People are not only what they do, but what the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount are getting after is that God's kingdom is upside down from what you would ever expect it to be. Because when we, together, when we think of the poor, the last thing we think is God's favor, God's blessing being on that person. We think of the quite opposite, in fact. And Jesus says, no, you are wrong. This person is blessed. In my kingdom, this person has favor. So we must change our thinking from a binary moral behavior to learn a new way of being with God in his kingdom by what he says. And this is an invitation to respond to God's new way of life by participating in becoming who God actually created you and I to be. So let's look again at verse 3. And again now with that lens of Makairos. Blessed. Blessed if you do. Blessed are those who. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This, my friends, this is good news. It is good news. It is good news to the poor. While Matthew uses the word poor in spirit, and we'll get into that soon, Luke does not. Luke uses the phrase, blessed are the poor, and leaves out the qualifier in spirit. In Luke's words, as well as Matthew's, carry a meaning for the poor, those poverty-stricken among us. God's kingdom, his rule, and his reign have always, always included the poor. That is the good announcement of a good king who brings an upside-down kingdom, is the least of these that you would never expect. God is for them. He is on their side. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, the prophet Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Or Isaiah 25, verse 4, you have been a refuge, speaking of creator God, you have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Or Psalm 35, 10, O Lord, who is like you who delivers the poor? Or Psalm 72, 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who have no helper. God's story has always been about caring for the poor. Always. 
God throughout all of the story of Israel has always been on the side of the poor. The gospel proclamation, the good news of Jesus and the inauguration of his kingdom is good news to the poor. In an earthly kingdom where the poor have little to no value, they work low-wage jobs if they work, they have practically no influence in the city they live in, let alone in their day-to-day lives. They have little to contribute in an earthly sense that we would deem as valuable. And those that have little or contribute nothing, the kingdom of God belongs to them. Let me say that again. Those that have little and can contribute nothing, the kingdom of God belongs to them. The poor are blessed not because of their poverty, but because of their position of need. The poor are blessed because of their position of need. Mark 12 tells us a story about when Jesus was watching people bring their offerings. And he sees many rich people come with a lot and throw it into the treasury. And then he sees a widow come in with two mites, which like quite literally equates to a few cents, and throw it in. And Jesus tells his disciples, this poor widow, she put more in than any of the others. She put everything she had including her need, into the treasury. So while the poor have a unique opportunity to take refuge in God out of their need, when Jesus says that blessed are the poor in spirit, I believe he is not only describing a unique blessing to the poor and their part in the upside-down kingdom, but is also describing the way in which we are to approach God. When Matthew uses the words poor in spirit, it drags in a whole new meaning. As we talked about, the poor have very little to bring. And a part of us participating in the kingdom of God in this reality, in a spiritual sense, means we come before God like the widow with two mites who have very little to bring. We come not with anything but our desperation for him. We come in a great position of need because we, like the poor, cannot be our own deliverer. We cannot be our own savior. We cannot save ourselves. And so we come to God desperate for who he is. Many scholars believe that Matthew starts with this beatitude for a specific reason because this is the access point to the kingdom. You actually don't go in unless you become poor in spirit, that these things coincide together. So the rest of the Beatitudes, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the rest of the the letter of Matthew actually don't hold as much value because you don't access the kingdom unless you become poor in spirit. If we are looking to participate in Jesus' kingdom, we can't do that and be full of pride. Those two things don't belong together. Jesus will not allow his his kingdom and his kingdom culture of humility and desperation and need and poverty of spirit to be corrupted by pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. Those things don't belong in the kingdom. And as a good king, he does not allow them in the kingdom. And so we, as God's people, come to him in recognition of who he is, 
which is the very thing that allows us to become poor in spirit. Recognizing that we actually don't bring things of value to Jesus and his kingdom. Or as D.A. Carson puts it, we must recognize a personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. That we don't have a single asset of value to bring to the kingdom where Jesus is king. And some of you may even be asking the question, like, what do I do? I'm not poor. What do I do? Is it better for me to become poor? And there is a historic church tradition where followers of Jesus take a vow of poverty. That is absolutely a thing in church history. And, and them taking a vow of poverty, poverty absolutely forms in, need, uh, uh, forms in them a dependence and a necessity um, that they cling to Jesus in a unique way because of the blessing, because of the need that they have before God. But again, poverty does not equal blessing. Poverty may equal blessing when Jesus' upside-down kingdom is fully manifest, but that is not the case yet. Theologians call this present time the time of the now and not yet, where Christ has been inaugurated as king, but clearly not everything on earth is happening under the rule and reign of Jesus. There are things that are happening that are broken. They're falling apart. It just this last 18 months, 16 months feels that. It feels like things are falling apart. And so while Jesus rules and reigns, his will is not happening fully on earth as it is in heaven. That's why Jesus prays, God, may your will happen on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we pray that God's will would be done in Bakersfield as it is in heaven. And culturally speaking, we have been conditioned to approach God and his kingdom not with, not with poverty of spirit, but with something more like what Pastor John Tyson calls like being middle class in spirit. And the spirit of the middle class believes that we actually have much to bring to the table, much to bring to the kingdom. Because we are fascinated and wholeheartedly consumed by pointing out the things in our own life that we think are valuable for the rest of the world to see. We are fascinated by what we think we get to bring to Jesus. Our whole life is caught up in making much of the attributes of our life that we think are most valued by people and culture. It doesn't take much to see or much convincing to see that our culture and individualistic behavior is becoming increasingly more self-centered and narcissistic. When the reality is much of our life is guided not by the decisions that we make. We didn't choose, we didn't choose to be born where we were born. We didn't choose who to be born to. We didn't choose what ethnicity we are or what sort of family dynamic or value system we were raised in. We didn't choose how our family of origin, the family that we came from, we didn't choose how they shaped us and formed us. 
We didn't choose whether we had parents we admired or despised. We didn't choose if we wanted to be like them or not. We didn't choose our genetic predisposition toward intellect or toward grit or toward any of these other things that we view as socially beneficial in our culture. Those things are hardwired in us often from birth. And yes, they can grow. And yes, they can expand. That's absolutely true. But by and large, we did not choose a significant portion of how our life ended up. So to stand alone with our middle-class mindset that I have single-handedly built my life to be the way that it is is false. When we think the way that we form our lives, when we think this way, we begin to form our lives not around God and what God has done, but about us and what we have done. I get what I deserve, and God helps those who help themselves. These are not biblical statements. These are not the scriptures. Because it is not those who help themselves that inherit the kingdom of God, but the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus' words. And as we hear that this morning and like have this internal wrestling, like Jesus' words are that the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom. And those that think they have something to bring to God's kingdom on their own, those are not poor in spirit. And so what sits opposite of being poor in spirit is being filled with pride. And pride is a heart shift away from love where our primary question our primary question is not how should I interact with the world, but why is the world interacting with me the way that it is? Why is the world honoring me or not honoring me? How can I get the world to honor me? Why is the world esteeming me or making much of me? How can I get more of the things that I want? This, this is a, a tell me a story and I will tell you a better one type of person. This is the person that's like always one-upping the thing you did over the weekend. This is the person that like just refuses to go through a conversation without making sure that they're heard and something about them is said. And Jesus, quite frankly, does not want us to be people who are concerned with our own self and our own story and our own voice being heard. Jesus wants us to live in a way that is marked by love and love for God and love for neighbor above love for self. And in the book of James, God says that he stands opposed to the proud. God says that he stands opposed to the proud. God will not allow people acting from a position of pride to be a part of his good kingdom. God will not allow a prideful person to corrupt the culture of humility that Jesus has created in his kingdom. So God will either bring them to change, to a place of humility, or God will not allow them to be a part of, be a part of the work he is doing. You see, why this is so important is because the only one who deserves honor and glory and praise is Jesus. And him alone and anyone who thinks that they can bring something into the kingdom to bring attention to themselves, you don't get to take away attention from Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't allow you to participate, not because he despises you, but because his kingdom is good. And it's about the right thing, which is him.
So then what do we do? If we are a person of influence or intellect or prosperity on this earth, what on earth do we do? We take the things that God has given us and we use them to champion, encourage, and to bless others. We learn to embody the call in Genesis 12 to Abraham that you have been blessed by the hand of God to be a blessing. Not that so Abraham can live comfortable and convenient or you and I could live comfortable and convenient, but that we have been blessed by God, the creator of heaven and earth, to turn around and be a blessing to someone else. And we as the church must believe wholeheartedly with our mind, body, spirit, and soul that we have been blessed, not for our own sake, not that the blessing stops there, but that we have been blessed to be a blessing. But to be a blessing is not a disconnected consumption of life. To bless others, we have to know others. We have to be in community in others. We can never know how to meet the needs of people if we're not putting ourselves in a position where we're even aware of the needs of people. So often in the church, the instruction of Jesus gets walked right over or it gets like grabbed and hijacked by bad theology. We either ignore it or we don't take it seriously enough. We ignore the call to become like people who are poor in spirit. We walk around with our pride and we wave it high in the sky and even church culture tells us that's okay because we want people to see us as people of value. May you understand today Jesus already sees you as a person of value. Jesus sees that your life matters. He created you for that reason, to abide in loving relationship with him but you don't get to take the value that Jesus has given you and claim it as your own. You don't get to take the blessing that Jesus has given you and claim it as your own. He's given it to you to steward and he's entrusted it to you that you might turn around and not consume it, not hold on to it, not hoard it, but that you might pass it out to the world that we might exalt the name of Jesus. And that story That story, this new kingdom vision, that story is a story we struggle to believe because it fights against the very roots of who we are in American culture. But Jesus says that if you want to find your life, you must be willing. You must lose it. If you want to be first, then you should be last. And the greatest among you is the servant of all. You see, this isn't just like a one-off. This is the fundamental basis of who Jesus and his kingdom are. We struggle as people to believe that things have come not from God's hand, but that they've come from our own. Self-centered pride and exaltation has crept into our home and our family and the church and our way of life. And it is right to repent from that pride, to turn from it. To not place the value of our life in the things that we can identify as assets that we bring to Jesus or to our family or to any other thing that we come to. It is right that we turn to Jesus with our empty hands and our open hearts. 
and we lean into graciously practicing being poor in spirit, something you and I will never master. Let us get that clear. We will not master being poor in spirit, but we get to graciously practice being poor in spirit as we come to Jesus with our empty hands. Now, this is not, this is not self-hatred. I want to be really clear about this. This is not declaring worthlessness. God says you, you, you have worth. You carry worth because God says so. You're made in his image. He's crafted and created you for beautiful things. So, so we don't just like take this and say we're worthless and we hate ourselves. That's not what we do. But we do come before God realizing we have nothing to offer that he doesn't already have. We don't bring our job title or our bank account. We don't even bring like our high-ranking moral achievement as I weigh my life against my neighbors. All we bring to God is our need. And he is faithful to meet us in that place. And when we come to that place, we don't come to manipulate God into pouring out favor. We come because we recognize who God is and who we are. And in this place, we learn not to crave attention or even recognition for the things that we do because our attention is placed upon Jesus. And so we worship him with all of our lives, one day at a time. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you. Um, thank you that you are the model for what it looks like to be poor in spirit. Thank you that... Uh, you, your upside-down kingdom like pours out blessing to the people we would never expect. Jesus, may you increase our like need for you. May you increase our desperation for you. I feel like there's, we've all experienced these times where we've come to like the end of our rope in life and we've cried out to you in desperate need, and then we move on, and two, three weeks later, we forget what that moment was like. God, we need you in like the depths of our heart in those same moments when we're most broken as, we, as when we do when we feel like we're most whole, God. And so would you return us to a state of like whole dependence on you, Jesus? And that's not for our sake or our glory, but God, we want to abide in what you say flourishing the good life, kingdom life is. We want to be there because that's where you are. And so God, would you do that even now in our hearts? Return us to this like lowly state of like, I am, I am but dust and I am but dust created in God's image and I'm meant to be in his presence. And so we come to you with our need now, God. We don't bring anything to you, and you don't ask us to bring anything. You just ask us to come. So here we are, Lord. May your, may your work in our heart and in our spirit, may you bring it to maturity. May you bring it to love. May you bring it to a place of like deep abidance with you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We praise things in your name. Amen. So each week after we teach the scriptures, we respond to them. This is, this is a sacred moment 
um, in our gathering where as Jesus' church, we sit under the scriptures and we sing to him, but we allow the things that Jesus stirred in our heart. We don't like put those away. Now we lean into them. And we let God work those things into our life. And so as we respond, we do that in a number of different ways. We respond to God now as we sing and as later we will take bread and cup together. Um, But in this time, would you join us as we stand and we allow the Spirit to do the work that only the Spirit could do as we give ourselves to Him.